Hi all, welcome to Anime Echoes. So we'll be going through Bakano Light Novel 9, pages 78 to 92. Okay, so we jump over to Rail and Frank, and they're on their mission to become decoys. They're noticing that the passerbys are staring at them due to how they look, the distinct features that they have. Frank looks like a large baby, and Rail's certis scars are just really striking and apparent. Frank doesn't really like the attention, but Rail, for the most part, he finds it amusing, or you know, just how it is kind of thing. Rail is interested in the idea of becoming someone famous, and you'll remember that he's mentioned this idea before, where he states that he thinks that they won't be in the history books, that they'll be forgotten. But you can tell that Rail wants to have some kind of impact, or he wants to be remembered in some way. He says, um, since they are decoys, a way for them to enter the history books is for them to be at the like center of catastrophic events. Like, if they are at the scenes of multiple bombings, then they could very much be known as like the duo that appears, and then when they do, explosions happen. So that's their plan to, you know, become known. Also, Rail states that there's a guy named Saint Germain, and he was part of the history books, and they say that he slipped through time or is an immortal. Now, we know another Saint Germain, which is the vice president of the Daily Days. So now I'm thinking, is Saint Germain like some sort of immortal? Uh, is he, you know, is he the same guy? Is this just a reference? What's going on here? Anyways, back to how Rail and Frank are appearing to everyone else. So Rail and Frank are very much, like, they very much look like misfits or outcasts from society. And Rail understands this fact, like, very much. For Rail, he seems to take it more as like a fashion statement, that people are looking at him, you know, and he's just kind of showcasing his fashion. That the scars that he has on his face and all, all over his body are just what makes him different, and he's really cheeky about it. He's, um, you know, he, it, it doesn't really seem like a big insecurity at this point. Um, but Frank is less like this. He's kind of uncomfortable and perhaps even like insecure about how he looks. Moving on, um, Raul notices a girl is laughing, and it's Carol, you know, we know her, and it's also the vice president of the Daily Days, and we know him as well, and they're both kind of just strolling through in the same area that Raul and Frank are at. They don't look at um, Raul or Frank all too much, they're not particularly startled by them, they don't think they look particularly odd, their attention's not really going there, they just kind of, um, yeah, they're just moving forward. Though Carol ends up bumping into Frank, and then she like looks up and sees what he actually looks like and probably sees Rail as well. And then it dawns on her that the people in front of her are kind of odd looking. And Rail enjoys seeing this. You know, this is the reaction that he was looking for. Though for this reaction that Rail kind of savors, the vice president doesn't like what he's seeing. He repr reprimands Carol for acting rude and then Carol has to apologize. Rail and Frank are curious why Saint Germain had like no reaction. Like, he looked at them like he's already seen them before. And while he hasn't, he has seen people that are kind of similar. He talks about a doctor who has scars that are way worse than Rails, so that's pretty bad. Um, that he knows someone named Robert from a town called Alton or something. He's 16 years old and 8 feet, so someone with a similar look to Frank. So once again, he's seen people like who look like misfits or outcasts before. So that's why it wasn't much of a surprise to Saint Germain when he saw Frank and Rail. 
That's why he was not bothered, though he tends to not be bothered by many things. Like, he doesn't get phased by anything. Like, he doesn't even break into a sweat when, like, a gun is pointed at him, when Hilton's pointing the gun at him. Is he the Saint Germain that's lived for centuries? You know, I am kind of wondering about this. Where does his tenacity come from? Why is he so bold? Why is he not phased by anything? Is it because he's lived for centuries? Is that why? Also, this dude might be someone that Lad would really want to kill. You know, someone who thinks that they aren't going to die in any circumstance. Oh, well, actually, that's not true. So, like, the vice president in the prologue scene did give his information over pretty readily once um, his life was on the line. So, he's not... You know, he's not uh, thinking that he's bulletproof or anything like that. He's not in a situation, like if a gun is pointed at him, he's not thinking, man, I could just, you know, like I'm not going to die at all. I'm really confident right now. He's not that kind of person. He's very calculating and he knows his limits. So it's less about um, not fearing death. And also like upon seeing um, like Senator Barium, like he did reprimand Carol for freaking out and losing composure. So I feel like the vice president is more focused on not seeming weak or not composed. Like, he might be focused on the power dynamics between himself and other people. Like, at no point does he want to showcase weakness in front of other people. Though, it doesn't seem to be coming from a place of insecurity. Like, it just feels like he understands, like, the value of having a strong image to other people. Like, something like that. Anyways, that was a bit of a tangent, so back to Rail and the rest of them. I do like Rail's dynamic with Carol. He teases her, he makes fun of her, you know, Carol puffs her cheeks and acts like she's offended, but she's smiling as well. Like, they both seem to get along really well, and not gonna lie, I think I ship Rail and Carol already, but I think it's implied that Carol might be a bit older than she appears, so maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe I'm making that up, but I don't know. Either way, I wouldn't be surprised if Rail becomes interested in her. Um, he's already more focused on her than he is with the vice president. Like she's, um, you know, she's captured him in some way. So this could lead to something. Um, anyways, to make up for her rudeness, right? She got surprised at looking at them and the vice president was reprimanding her. Um, she says that she'll buy them lunch to make up for it. Now, this means a lot, actually. So this was the first time... Like, people had ever, like, offered something like that to Rail, You know, just doing, like, a offering from a place of genuine gifting, I guess. So I think it's implied that acts like this, like, acts of genuine kindness, don't really happen to Rail. Huey really, well, I think, Huey really needs to keep his circus of people, you know, Lamia, like, emotionally healthy. But he doesn't, like, he doesn't care about them. Like, he really doesn't seem to care about them. Or maybe he sucks at showing it. I mean, like, Rail specifically doesn't like Huey anyway, so there's that as well. Like, Huey probably just kind of sucks at, you know, taking care of his men. Anyways, back to Carol uh, giving them food. Um, Frank tells Carol that he eats a lot too. He has a big body, and Carol mentions that St. Germain will pay for it. So, with this last line, we now know that Rail and Frank know that the vice president's name is St. Germain. The famous person that they were talking about, so I feel like this will definitely come up again. Um, overall, I thought this was a really good scene. Um, I feel like Rail and Frank are both just misunderstood children. Like, they just need some love and some care. Um, I like how cheeky Rail can be, and he's definitely got more personality than Frank for me just right now. Um, he's probably like a standout in this scene and just in general for now. Um, 
he also wants to be famous in some way, so that's cool as well. And the dynamic between him and Carol is also really good. They're both childish in nature, like they are children, I'm pretty sure. Um, so it's just really fun. And also with Rail and Frank, you really get to feel just how much of like an outsider or outsiders um, they both feel like they are in this scene. Like with the passerbys looking on at them and um, yeah, so just overall good scene. We're getting more in touch with these new characters and um, yeah, it's I feel like it's leading up to just really good dynamics and just a lot of interesting a lot of interesting stuff for the future. Now, in the next scene, we jump over to Christopher and Ricardo. So Ricardo is actually with Lua. He tends to give her food and things like that. We actually learn about the surrounding area Lua is locked up in, how the windows are locked and how the guards operate. Lua is never not monitored by a guard, but if a guard has to go do something else, another will take its place. So, I do wonder if this information that we're getting relayed to us right now, um, if this will be like integral to Lua's escape or something like that. Like that the moment the guards interchange, like that's the moment to strike in order to escape. Though, this is all just speculation right now, because Lua shows zero intention in wanting to escape and she's just very quiet. The Russo family keeps talking about her like she's a guest, but Christopher notes to himself that she's clearly a prisoner. Now, we have some like interesting back and forth between Christopher and Ricardo, which reveals some stuff about like their characters. So, Ricardo isn't particularly interested in being Mafia, and he thinks that the Russo family line will end with him. His parents are dead, and when Placido dies, he will be the next Don, the next successor, but he doesn't care about that, and he doesn't want that. So he thinks this whole Mafia line should just end with him, never taking up the mantle to begin with. With the topic of the conversation being family, naturally, the conversation moves towards Christopher stating that he wants to empathise with Ricardo just about what he told him, and that's about the death of his parents. But Ricardo doesn't talk about his parents with much emotion. He just states that they're dead, and that that's a fact, So, and no amount of emotions will bring them back. Christopher also starts talking about his relationship to emotions in general, so yeah, like Christopher does want to be able to feel the emotions that other people are going through. He says that plays and books allows him to feel powerful emotions. I mean, I think we can all relate to that. He's saying that he can feel into the emotions of something external to himself. And he wants to be able to do that with Ricardo. Though he also mentions that um, he's part of a group called Lamia and that they're basically his family. He has a dream one day that when someone asks him what's important, he can say, it's family. Like, it's a scene from a movie, like from, like, Fast and Furious or something. Like, he wants to be able to say it. But Ricardo calls him out for it. He says he's being a hypocrite because he's just chasing, like, a scene or an imaginary vision in his head. Like, it's not out of some, like, deep love for someone or his friends. But Christopher doesn't mind. He doesn't care that it's potentially fake. Chris Christopher doesn't really, um, like, he doesn't define what kind of relationships he wants with people. He's very open to various kinds, parasitic, completely transactional, symbiotic, anything really. Christopher does mention that Chi called him crazy. Ricardo states that Chi stayed friends with him even though he thought that. So Chi's a nice guy. I really like this small line. Chi was kind of insecure about his friendship with Christopher. You recall that in like the um, seventh novel. So it's nice to see Ricardo kind of validate that Chi's a good friend to Christopher, all things considered. 
I thought this was like a small heartwarming moment. I also want to add that this more somber post-defeat Christopher is just fantastic. I already liked him, like with his cool design and interesting dialogue, but this Christopher is even better for me. He's very open, he talks more thoughtfully, like he's still crazy, but you can tell that there's definitely something different about him compared to before, and I really like it. Also, um, his relationship or the dynamic between Ricardo and Christopher is just great. Like, it's spelled out for us why they have such good chemistry as well. The reasons given are this. Christopher is an eccentric, isolated from the world due to being unnatural. And Ricardo is isolated from the world due to being the Don, um, due to being the grandchild of the Don of a mafia gang. Though with Ricardo, um, you can tell given his personality and how standoffish and direct he can be, he would probably feel isolated even if he wasn't the future Don. Now, moving on, we already knew Christopher likes plays for um, getting in touch with emotions and stuff like that. But also, Christopher likes to read. Like, he likes to read plays and books and things like that as well. And this makes sense because the poet, in a previous scene, does say that um, Christopher's like the only person other than himself within the group that has a fascination with words as well. So that's a pretty cool similarity, I think. Also, Christopher ponders why the twins haven't reached out to him yet. It's been a while, so that is pretty strange, he thinks. We get some small tidbits about the twins, which is always welcome. Um, You know, how they appear out of nowhere. So it's confirmed that they are female and male, respectively. Though the person that arrives to contact Christopher is always different. Now, Christopher's always been under the impression that if he calls out a twin, that they will just like pop up out of nowhere. Um, But that hasn't been happening. And he's thinking that's probably because they don't know where he is. Like, they don't actually have eyes everywhere. It's just in a certain locations. Like, if the twins know where Christopher is, then their eyes will follow. Christopher does wonder if they're done with him. If Huey is done with him. He doesn't seem to mind that, though. He's quite okay with watching Ricardo grow up and become a Don. So I guess um, Christopher doesn't actually believe what Ricardo is saying about the Russo family line ending with him. Um, Christopher might think that in the end, like, Ricardo will become a Don regardless. Or he thinks it's, like, inevitable or something he'll, like, grow into. Anyways, um, Christopher's travelling with Ricardo to um, get Lua some books, but Placido calls him over. He tells him that if anything happens to Ricardo, he'll end him. Also, that Christopher will get busy soon. Like, someone's being released from prison that wants to kill Ricardo. Christopher doesn't show much respect to Placido. I mean, why would he? Um, showing clearly that his employer is just Ricardo and not the rest of the Russo family. Placido doesn't care all that much though, like he's pretty okay with it. Like he might have cared before, but now that he's immortal, there's no need to have a grandchild to be alive actually anyway. He can just live forever, like that's what he's thinking. So all that pressure on Ricardo, you know, the poor kid, he doesn't even care about him now. And that's how the scene ends. So I thought this scene was really great. I love Ricardo and um, Christopher's dynamic. They have a really good like back and forth. They have different personalities and they really vibe. Um, I do really like how detached and direct Ricardo can be when they talk. It feels like um, like it feels like he doesn't really consider Christopher's feelings when he says things. He just says what he feels at any given time, and Christopher's completely okay with that. Like he's just, I mean, he basically kind of does the same thing just in a different way, Uh, less detachment, I would say. Um, Anyway, I've already gone into why I like Christopher in this scene, so I won't repeat that. Anyways, really good stuff.